welcome to The American Heretic. I'm your host, Charlie McCauley, and this is episode five of season two. In 2010, uh, across the world from where I sit, in Tunisia, there was a local street vendor by the name of Mohamed Bouazizi. The municipality in which he lived confiscated his fruit cart and took away his only way of making a living uh, there in Tunisia. And the pain of that oppression, uh, partnered with the authoritarian regime under which he lived, led Muhammad to douse himself with gasoline and light himself on fire. He self-immolated. He committed suicide by burning himself to death. And that single act uh, was a spark that ignited a much more real fire around the Arab world. Five different nations and millions of people took to the streets to overthrow their oppressive governments, including Cairo, Egypt, and what we now call the Arab Spring. There's these moments in history where one person or one event seems to change the course or the political will or the, the current wind of the times and shapes history in our, in our own country. In Selma, Alabama, many of you probably know, in 1965, John Lewis and other African-American leaders led in a historic march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge um, with also clergy from around the country. And the entire nation watched on national television as Sheriff Jim Clark and his posse beat many of the protesters almost to death. And not much long after that, the Voting Rights Act passed because the winds of change came from one event that captivated the nation. Well, we are living in one of those times. This year, as all of you know, uh, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, has sparked a similar flame in the United States of America when a police officer knelt on his neck for over eight minutes and he died. Uh, Some estimate that 15 to 26 million people in over 60 different countries have marched to the chant of Black Lives Matter in response to this injustice. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the Black Lives Matter movement. In the American Heretic podcast, this is right up our alley. We like talking about politics or theology or philosophy or anything uh, that's controversial. And this uh, Black Lives Matter movement is certainly that, and it's affected my own life. I've marched in uh, five or six marches here locally and around. I've brought my children to these marches. And I wanted to talk about it today and laser in, as I know in our polarized country, people have differing opinions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to first talk about why we say Black Lives Matter and talk a little bit about that, and then uh, a little bit more in the second section about Uh, what maybe we should be doing. So welcome back, and here we go. Well, it's August as I'm recording today's podcast, and some of you may be wondering why address Black Lives Matter a little bit on a delay compared to when um, perhaps the apex of the protests were happening. I hope they're still happening, and they are around the world. But uh, one of the reasons is to continue the momentum and uh, talk about an issue that is very near and dear to my heart. Now, all of you are probably also sick of social media posts about Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, but I thought in the spirit of this particular venue and medium, this podcast, it would be really important to make clear some of the distinctions, I think, especially in the way that I view this issue, and uh, to start some discussion and dialogue about you, the listeners. Now, one of the things I want to address right away is um, the obvious um, issue of me being a white male talking about Black Lives Matter. And I'm so thankful that uh, many of you listeners are people of color, many of you are white, and I'm mostly in this podcast addressing 
the white listeners. Uh, as a white man, I want to talk to white people about this particular issue because, uh, and, and part of what I'm going to do in the second part is try to point you to great resources, much better than me, uh, who are people of color who can lead us in this way. But I wanted to speak to our audience here, uh, particularly those of you who uh, are Caucasian or non-Hispanic or white uh, in the way you identify about this particular issue because uh, that's part of our responsibility is to educate ourselves. And um, so I'm so thankful for those of you that are people of color listening, and I hope you give me grace and uh, hope that you can uh, share feedback with me uh, as you listen into this podcast as well. The first thing to address is a really simple one that most of you probably already have your minds made up about or have seen men- endless memes about. Uh, but one of the critiques of the Black Lives Matter movement is the overly simple phrase, the all lives matter. Um, as I said, I've been at lots of these protests and uh, I've sat out at City Hall multiple times and oftentimes people drive by and they scream at us or flip us off and yell all lives matter uh, as we're holding a Black Lives Matter sign, which I'm sure you've seen video or you've experienced yourself. All lives matter has become kind of the anecdote or the answer to Black Lives Matter. There's a couple things to point out uh, very specifically about this idea. First of all, of course, all lives matter, and of course, black lives matter. No, I don't think any thinking person would disagree with either statement, but you can see culturally where they've come in tension with each other. And there's lots of memes and um, different social media posts and also analytical and um, academic literature addressing this issue. But the most powerful analogy to me, there, there's two things that really stick out to me, is why I think all lives matter, although it is true, is very unhelpful. Uh, something can be true and also unhelpful and possibly even uh, more than unhelpful, harmful. And the, the reason is the spirit behind the words we say. All lives matter in this case is a version of silencing someone saying black lives matter. The, my favorite analogy is is that of cancer. You know, every year I, I love football and coaching flag football and uh, there's the breast cancer awareness month. And and, and it, it would be very strange if someone was on the corner saying that breast cancer matters and you went by and said, all cancer matters. Although that's true, all cancer matters, you're clearly trying to silence the person drawing attention to the problem of breast cancer. And within that same spirit, I, I hope you can see the problem with using all lives matter as a response. Now, I understand that being someone's first intuition um, to think of that true statement that all lives matter. But the problem is historically the word all, particularly, hasn't been that inclusive. Um, our very founding documents say that all men are created equal, but it, that was written when uh, some men, uh, again, even the gender language is difficult here, were created, uh, were considered three-fifths of a person, African Americans at the time, in the Constitution. And all didn't really mean all. And we say the, for liberty and justice for all, uh, and we've said that for years as we recite the, the Pledge of Allegiance for decades and decades, and yet uh, liberty and justice hasn't been for all. So that's one of the reasons we need a specific um, dialectic, we need a specific semantic, we need a specific wording to say that it's, it's black lives right now that haven't mattered and we need to highlight that they do in fact matter. Now some of you may say, well see that's my problem is I think they have mattered because uh, as you mentioned Selma, civil rights already happened and things are equal and we live in a country where things are the same. Well that's something I really want to focus in on and think the value of this podcast might be. I want to talk a little bit about the statistics of how we know there isn't liberty and justice for all and that all men have not been created equal even to this day in the United States of America. 
if for nothing else, for conversation's uh, sake. First of all, another phrase that's important in this dialogue that is often misunderstood is a lot of us are trying to point out the very specific forms of systemic racism, systemic racism in the United States of America that are so problematic. Many people, when they hear that phrase, uh, many white people or many conservatives kick back and say there, there are no systems that are filled with all these racists. Police are not all racist, or banks are not all racist, or bankers are not all racist, or the education system is not all racist. Well, of course you're right. When you talk about personal individual racism, every police officer isn't that, and every banker isn't that. That's not what systemic racism is. In fact, it's almost the opposite. I heard it said, or I read somewhere, that in a, in a systemic racism in a society, or if there is a system that is racist, it actually requires no racist people. You could have every person in that system be non-racist or anti-racist people, and yet the system itself, the, the system itself would still perpetuate unequal results. And that's what systemic racism is, and that's what we see in the United States of America. We're just going to touch the tip of the iceberg here on something that you truly could get a PhD in. But some of the things that I think you have to wrestle with, um, I, want to, I want to just talk about three of many. I want to talk about income and incarceration and then police killings. The income or the wealth disparity between white Americans and black Americans is very difficult to explain outside of systemic racism. Um, first of all, if you want to talk historically, just as a historical survey, you know, African American, our black sisters and brothers were freed with the Emancipation Proclamation and, and at the end of the Civil War, but they were freed to poverty, not to land. And so they began with zero and, and made it very difficult for them to pass that on. That was only two lifetimes ago and a handful of generations of grandparents that had no wealth to pass on. That's one part of the problem, but it's way bigger than that. There's been intentional attacks on the black community. If you haven't ever read about uh, the bombing or the attack on Tulsa's Black Wall Street or what happened in Wilmington, North Carolina, go educate yourself on that. Uh, when white people and leaders in the Jim Crow South and elsewhere have just physically and unabashedly attacked black wealth to keep white people in control of those things. What we have today... The um, net median or the average uh, net worth, sorry, not the net median, the average net worth of white people in America is $171,000, and it's only $17,000 for the average African American. It's 10 times the wealth for the average white person than the black person. So that really almost forces us, it, it, it may seem kind of statistical and, and out there and analytical, but it's actually really simple. You, you have to believe one of two things. You either have to believe that something within the systems of America have made it more difficult for black Americans to get net wealth up, or you have to believe some sort of racist ideology that there's something wrong with black people, that they don't work hard enough, or they don't have the skills to make that kind of money. And that is a very racist belief that most people don't actually, hopefully, consciously hold, although we do know there is racism in this country and people who would espouse those racist views. Uh, those have been disproven over and over again, academically and experientially in every way. There is no difference between black people, white people, and Latino people. It's the system. 
It's the, it's the culture that holds them back with a lack of opportunities or higher interest rates or redlining of districts, all sorts of historical themes. But that simple fact is something that's really, really difficult to get around. It's just something you can look in every data set and chart. It's very much harder for our black siblings uh, in this country to get ahead and make up ground. And if, if you know anything about money, which I know all of you do, money works for you when you have it, and it works against you when you don't in debt. And the wealth of this country has never been equally distributed. It has always been in the powerful and the white. Just look at the numbers of white CEOs of companies on down. You can see the systemic racism, even if many of the participants in the system don't actively or consciously hate black people, they might still participate in systemic racism and supporting it either through silence or complicity, which is something to really understand. So that's one of the areas in which we need to understand that black lives matter. The second thing, and it's a huge one, is the incarceration rates, the, the rates at which we imprison people of color. So here's some key stats to look at. African Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate that is 5.1 times the imprisonment of whites. In five states, Iowa, Minnesota, New Jersey, Vermont, and Wisconsin, the disparity is more than 10 to 1 that African Americans are incarcerated. In 12 states, more than half of the prison population is black. Alabama, Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Mississippi, New Jersey, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. Maryland, whose prison population is 72% African American, tops the nation. And in 11 states, at least one in 20 adult black males is in prison. Think about that. Of black men, one out of every 20 is in prison. And in Oklahoma, the state with the highest overall black incarceration rate, one in 15 black males ages 18 and older is in prison. You have 15 black friends, one of them is in prison in Oklahoma. It's an unbelievable disparity. States um, exhibit substantial variation in the range of racial disparity from black-white ratio of 12 to 2 to 1 in New Jersey to 2 to 4 to 1 in Hawaii. Latinos are imprisoned at a rate that is 1.4 times the rate of white people. So you can see that there's a difference um, with our Latino population. Still worse than the white population, but ne not near as bad as the overall. Um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics reports that 35% of state prisoners are white, 38% are black, and 21% are Hispanic. Think about that. Most prisoners are black, even though black people only make up 13% of the United States. So you can see that within the system, there's a problem in incarcerations. And then when we're talking about George Floyd and we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we have to talk about police killings. Now, when you look at the numbers of police killings, uh, actually, and many of you may have seen this on social media, police do kill slightly more white people than they do kill black people in all sorts of different situations that arrive uh, with policing. However, the percentages are still way off. If there wasn't unequal policing, it should look like 13% of the deaths would be African-American, but it's closer to like 40% of the deaths because, again, there seems to be this systemic racism at play. But here's the thing that I find most frustrating. Any death, um, any murder um, outside, uh, uh, any kind of killing is, is immoral. And, and justice needs to happen. There needs to be consequences for anyone who kills anyone. And one of the things about George Floyd and his murder that's so hard to understand is how people try to paint George Floyd as if he wasn't that great of a person. Well, fine. That doesn't mean he deserves the death penalty, which if you haven't listened to the episode on the death penalty is abhorrent anyway. 
Um, he shouldn't be killed no matter what his crimes are. In his case, being accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill, he shouldn't have a death penalty. The important piece, though, is that it's about the justice that happens. And it's sometimes hard for people to isolate this when we talk about police killings. Because, yes, black people and Hispanic people and Latino people and white people kill cops. The thing is, if you kill a cop in this country you will get the harshest sentences that are out there. You don't get away with killing cops, no matter what color. There is justice when it comes to the people who would say blue lives matter. And first of all, a blue life isn't a thing. That's a job. You don't actually have a blue life. Second of all, we already have justice. Uh, the highest imprisonment and highest punishments are doled out for killing a cop, no matter what your race is. The problem is on the other side. When cops kill they're constantly off the hook, especially when they kill African Americans. And that's why we take to the streets, because we see something's not right, and we use our voice in democracy, and we follow the great leaders like John Lewis and Martin Luther King Jr., and we allow our emotions to lament a death and to move us to action. So a lot of critics will say, but what about black-on-black crime? And it's the same thing. Yes, Black people commit crime and kill other black people, and they kill white people, and white people kill black people, and those are all real things, and they're all horrible. All violent crime needs justice. The problem is the only consistent type of crime that doesn't receive justice is when a police officer kills and is protected by either police unions or they were protected by an all-white jury if it's killing of a black person. And this is something that's happened for decades, centuries in America because it's part of our original sin, the racism that undergirds the American way of being. Well, next I want to look at, uh, in the face of this, why we say Black Lives Matter and these statistics. What can we possibly do? So what should we do? I, I truly believe the most important call for all of us always is to educate ourselves. Uh, we need to stretch ourselves and learn, listen to different voices. I don't want to overwhelm with a ton of resources here, so I picked just a few to point you in the direction of people um, uh, who I think have a lot to say about Black Lives Matter, about our system, the status quo, hope, future, uh, with lots of layers. The, f the first book I'd point you to is called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And this one is relevant, especially if you, like me, come from the Christian faith. It talks a lot about the role of the church and its complicity with the growth of white supremacy and racism, uh, which is an excellent read, excellent read. I would also highly recommend Kelly Brown Douglas's book, Stand Your Ground, um, about black bodies and the justice system. I'm a huge fan of that book and of Kelly Brown Douglas. Uh, both of them are uh, black leaders, and I would highly encourage you to read those books if you haven't, just to educate yourself, but also continue to listen and learn. Um, there's also a great article in the Washington Post, if you don't want to read a book by Radley Bolka, it's uh, that there's overwhelming evidence uh, that the criminal justice system is racist. If you Google that in the Washington Post, uh, you'll be able to find that. He also wrote Rise of the Warrior Cop. Uh, those are that's a great article if you want to just kind of get started by by googling that but just activate yourself get energized listen have conversations uh, march if you have the chance uh, talk with friends vote is the probably the most important thing um, and and build relationships with people of color if that's not natural to you if you're a white person i'm speaking to you right now um, do you truly not just have a black friend that justifies your racism, because that's one of the things that white people, uh, we often do, is say, well, I have a black friend, and think that that excuses us from going deep down the rabbit hole of understanding the ways in our whole life we've been programmed with uh, subtle and sometimes not so subtle white supremacy. 
Um, it's not okay to just have a friend. Do you ever challenge yourself, immerse yourself in, in different cultures? Uh, have you ever gone to a, a black church? Um, and if you're a person of faith and experienced a different community, I would, I would encourage you to do that so that you can grow and be connected more to the body of Christ. And for me, I can tell you on a real personal note, my life changed dramatically uh, several years ago when I, it was like a light bulb went off and I realized that all the theology that I was reading was written by European white men. And I started reading theology written by women and by women and men um, of people of color. And it transformed everything about how I saw the world. And it was a gift and it's exciting. It shouldn't feel overwhelming or hard. It should be something that inspires you and that you get excited about doing. So maybe that article or one of those books will just be uh, sort of a gateway drug, for lack of a better, better term, that can really pull you into uh, learning a little bit more about this. And, uh, and I hope you can see in your own faith or worldview, how this is on all of us to grow, to make a, a better, perfect uh, union, a more perfect union, as we strive for always in our country, where there truly is justice for all, and when all are truly created equal. That's it for this podcast. Thanks for listening in, and uh, hope you can uh, get on board for the next one.